Hello, and welcome to part eight of my podcast, All About Antarctica. I'm Dr. Steve Emsley, and I'm a professor in the Department of Biology and Marine Biology at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, where I've been teaching an undergraduate class titled Antarctic Ecology, Geology, History, and Policy. In this podcast, I have distilled this class down into numerous parts that cover all these topics about Antarctica. Part eight, presented here, is on Antarctic lakes. When we think about Antarctica with its giant ice sheet covering all but 2% of the land, we don't tend to think that lakes could exist there. In actuality, there are hundreds of lakes in Antarctica, most along the coast or in oases, a term applied in Antarctica to large ice-free areas such as the Dry Valleys or Bunger Hills in East Antarctica, the two largest of these oases. But lakes also occur on top of glaciers and even deep under the ice sheet where liquid water exists because of the heat energy produced by the great weight of the ice. All these lakes vary considerably in their size, depth, chemistry including salinity, and the life they contain. No two lakes are exactly alike. Lakes in Antarctica can be classified into five types based on these characteristics. Freshwater lakes are the most common, defined as having less than 9% of the salt concentration of seawater. These lakes are especially numerous in the Antarctic Peninsula and Maritime Islands, where the warmer temperatures cause more melting of ice and snow into natural pockets and basins in the landscape. Consequently, most of these lakes are shallow, less than 50 meters deep, but one, Lake Raddock in East Antarctica, has a depth of 350 meters. These lakes remain frozen for most of the year, then thaw in summer when the winds can mix them before they refreeze for the winter. Hence, they are monomictic lakes, which means they mix or turn over only once per year, an important process for recycling nutrients from the bottom for biological productivity. Many species of algae, bacteria, and invertebrates thrive in these lakes, but in general they are oligotrophic to ultra-oligotrophic, meaning they have very low biological productivity. Saline lakes are a second type, defined as having greater than 9% salt concentration of seawater. Unlike most freshwater lakes, these lakes often have no inflow or outflow of meltwater, so they become closed lakes. When water evaporates from these closed lakes, the salinity will increase in the remaining water. Salts may enter the lake through groundwater flow if the local bedrock and soils have a high salt content as well. These salts are often not the sodium chloride or NaCl table salt we know so well, but salts comprised of calcium chloride, CaCl2. Regardless of which salt it is in the lake, the level of salinity will depress their freezing point so that the more saline a lake is, the colder the temperature needed for it to freeze. There are saline lakes in the dry valleys that remain liquid at very low temperatures. One hypersaline lake, Don Juan Pond in Wright Valley, was discovered when a helicopter pilot flying over it in 1961 saw liquid water even though the air temperature was minus 30 degrees Celsius. Later research has found that Don Juan Pond is the most saline lake in the world, 18 times saltier than seawater. It is also a shallow lake that is less than about 30 centimeters deep and its extreme salinity comes from the CaCl2 entering the lake from groundwater flow. As a result, this lake will not freeze until temperatures reach minus 54 degrees Celsius. Saline lakes might also form near the coast from sea level changes in the past. At high sea level, a basin may fill with seawater, which then remains trapped in the basin when sea level falls. Or, a freshwater lake on the coast may have an incursion of salt water when sea level rises. The dry valleys contain a diversity of lakes ranging from freshwater to saline, some that melt in summer and then refreeze, and some that are frozen year-round. 
As a result, the life found in these lakes can vary quite a bit. When Robert Falcon Scott and his men discovered the dry valleys in 1903, at first they didn't think any life could exist there. Closer examination of the lakes, though, revealed that many contained phytoplankton and cyanobacteria, which can form thick mats on lake bottoms. There are also bacteria, viruses, and protozoa in these lakes, and we now know of several kinds of zooplankton as well, including rotifers, cladosterins, and copepods. These tiny invertebrates feed on bacteria and algae and somehow made it to Antarctica, perhaps as eggs on the feet of birds such as skuas that migrate long distances to the north in winter, then return the following summer. A species of fairy shrimp can be found in freshwater lakes in the northern Antarctic Peninsula, but nowhere else because it needs two and a half months of liquid water to complete its breeding cycle. It feeds on algae and in bacterial mats and is the largest freshwater invertebrate in Antarctica reaching lengths of up to two to three centimeters. Some lakes may be clogged with algae under the right conditions. I have seen such lakes even in the colder regions of East Antarctica, small ponds that stay liquid throughout the brief summer period, but have considerable amounts of algae growing on the surface. These lakes are located near active or abandoned penguin colonies, so receive or have received in the past a large influx of nutrients from penguin guano that might explain this high algal growth. They remind me of eutrophic ponds and cow pastures where the excess nutrients from cow feces cause massive algal blooms. So the amount of life in, an in the Antarctic lakes, plants or animals can be impressive. A third type of lake that is unusual and once existed in the Arctic as well is the Epishelf Lake. This name relates to freshwater trapped along the coast by a floating ice shelf. And so these lakes are freshwater on top, but saline or seawater at depth. How can this happen? If a glacier is melting with an inflow of fresh water into the sea, but entry to the open sea is blocked by an ice shelf, the fresh water will form a lake between the coast and the edge of the shelf. Deep down, though, below the fresh water is the more dense seawater, so these lakes are both fresh and saline depending on depth. One well-known lake with these features, and the largest one in Antarctica, is Beaver Lake in the Bunger Hills of East Antarctica. It is a large lake, seven miles long with a permanent ice cover. It was discovered to be an epishelf lake when scientists found freshwater diatoms in the surface waters, but strictly marine fish hauled up from the bottom. However, if warming trends tend to collapse the ice shelf, this lake, like many of them in the Arctic, will disappear. A fourth type of lake is superglacial, or on top of glaciers. These can range from small ponds to large shallow lakes that are mostly freshwater, so frozen for most if not all of the year. Depending on the glacial movement, they may be short-lived as well, so contain little to no life. Sometimes these lakes can open a meltwater hole in a glacier, adding to the hydraulic system of the glacier with water flowing vertically and horizontally throughout it. When wind-blown dust and rock particles settle on a glacier, they absorb heat and start melting down into the glacial surface. Cryokonite holes form this way and can be quite deep, so you wouldn't want to slip into one. When water is forced out from a glacial front by high pressure, through this network of channels and holes, it can have dramatic effects. One famous example is Blood Falls at the front of Taylor Glacier in the Dry Valleys. Here the bedrock is high in iron oxides, and when liquid water below the glacier is forced out by the weight and movement of the glacier, the iron in it oxidizes on contact with the air and then freezes. This phenomenon has produced a large frozen bright red waterfall that must have been a bit terrifying to discover at first until you see what the red color really is and understand the cause. The last lake type is the subglacial lake, perhaps the most fascinating lakes in the world. 
These lakes occur below the Antarctic ice sheet and thus have been isolated for up to 14 million years or more. Once thought to be rare, we now know there are hundreds of them. They were first discovered using radio echo sounding to map the continent below the ice sheet. Basins of liquid water were detected because the radio waves echo back to a receiver at different delay times when they bounce off ice versus rock or liquid water. The largest and most famous of these lakes is Lake Vostok, named for its location by the Russian Vostok Station on the Polar Plateau. This is a large freshwater lake with an estimated size of 250 by 50 kilometers and a sediment record in the bottom that is estimated to be 300 to 400 meters deep. Because this lake has not been exposed to the atmosphere for at least 14 million years, since 2012 scientists from Russia have been attempting to drill into this lake to sample the waters for any evidence of extreme life there. Using ice core drills, they were able to reach the upper level of accreted ice above the liquid water in the lake and found some bacteria that is very different from other known bacteria, so appears to be indigenous to the lake. Other discoveries of life in this lake are likely. While we have concentrated only on lakes so far, I did want to mention that there are plenty of streams and even rivers in Antarctica. The longest known river on the continent is Onyx River, flowing from Lake Vanda in Wright Valley where it meanders down the valley for over 30 kilometers before reaching the sea. It has been studied and monitored by scientists for over 50 years. Recent warming trends have increased the amount of meltwater and inflow into lakes and streams in Antarctica and in 2019 in the dry valleys it was labeled a flood year because of this increased melt. How this melt as it continues and even increases impacts lake and stream communities is under investigation. If you want to read more about Antarctic lakes, I recommend a nicely produced and detailed book with that title by Johanna Leyburn Perry and Gemma Wadham, published in 2014. Thank you for listening to my podcast, All About Antarctica. I'm Dr. Steve Emsley of the University of North Carolina Wilmington, and I hope you tune in to Part 9 on Marine Mammals.